again the context from verse 17 through 21. Our focus today will be on verse 21. Galatians 2, verse 17. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would instruct us and teach us, that you would proclaim your word to us that we might Have that heart of wisdom, that heart of obedience, that heart of desire, that we would pant and long for you, to understand you, to to know how we ought to live, to, to know how to worship, how to live before you. And we ask that you would do these things in Christ's name for the building up of your church. Amen. There are many things in Christianity that are maligned, many things that are made fun of, but perhaps the one thing that most bothers people about Christianity is the cross, the cross of Christ, Christ crucified. And there's something about, as I meditated on this passage, I thought, man, it would be really nice if this message that I've entitled, Don't Lose Sight of the Cross, were next Sunday, because next Sunday is Easter. And then I thought, as I was driving last night, returning home and thinking about the passage again, I'm glad it's not Easter today because most of Christianity has relegated the cross and American Christianity anyway has given us one Sunday in the year and one Sunday morning sermon in the year to speak of the cross and then it's as if they don't want to hear anything more about the cross for another 364 days. The blood of Christ bothers people that the church would speak of sin and a need for forgiveness and a crucified Savior is anathema to many, even in the church, who would call themselves Christians. But Paul's speech here, his speech perhaps continuing before uh, Peter and others who were standing there listening, He comes to his fourth response in the objection of verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have become, have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? In other words, can we do anything that we like? Does it mean that we can be as bad as we want to be? 
Is it Christ sanctioning our sin? And Paul's answer, of course, is may it never be. God would forbid these things. And he's already given us three, I believe, responses to this, that Jesus is not a promoter of sin. He came to save his people from their sins. And Paul says, if I return to law as a justification, is my ability to stand right before God, I rebuild what I once destroyed, and I, I myself am found to be the sinner, not Christ promoting sin. And you cannot do whatever you like because you have participated in the death of Christ with him and he participates with you now in your life. Paul says, I have died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. I now live before him by faith. But in this verse 21, it's as if Paul, in giving his final response, redirects our thoughts a little bit, makes it a little bit clearer, I think. In, and some would refer to this verse as the central passage of the entire book of Galatians. The central thing, the thing that Paul wants to say, the key verse I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died. He was crucified on the cross. But now, he would say, your action in moving to righteousness that came through law on your own merit, on your own effort, what you are saying by that action is that Christ died for no purpose. And as we look at this passage, we see Paul responding again. It, it, it's kind of a surprise to us, the words that he chooses here. And yet we see his passion for the things of God, the things that he has learned from Christ of the gospel. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. It's like, wait a minute, it's been more than a, a chapter since we've heard this word grace. And there are some who think that Paul is, at this point, he, he's, he's had a, an, uh, um, reaction or a response to a further uh, furthering of the accusation or the objection in 17, something added to that now, accusing him of somehow nullifying God's grace. And I don't know that how that would come out, but it's almost as if uh, perhaps they thought that Paul nullifies or rejects the grace of God because he has rejected the law. Because he has rejected the law as a means of salvation, it's like, well, this is what God gave us. And so you're rejecting that gift of God for salvation. But I don't think that Paul is, is answering that at all. I don't think that's what's central in Paul's mind here. The, the Greek ha, does not have that doubling of the I. 
when it doubles and it uses I and then I as part of the verb, it's a I myself would am not nullifying. But it's not that. What's brought forward in the verse is the not nullifying. It's as if Paul is, is stepping back and saying, any of you, any of you believers not nullifying the grace of God is what I'm after here. Because you have to see that if righteousness comes by the law, what you have done, what you are saying about the crucifixion of Christ. And the words here mean to make void. To nullify is to make void or to frustrate. And here he inserts nullifying what? The grace of God. That which comes from God. And I don't think he just means the gospel in a general sense. He's not just saying you, you nullify the gospel. Or, or even the works of Christ. I, I don't think he's saying you, you frustrate that or you make void the works of Christ. But God's sovereign kindness manifested in the death of Christ. The, the focus is on the cross. The focus is on that giving of his life on the cross that Christ did. It was spontaneous on God's part, and it's without merit on our part. And it's not just, a, as some take it, a spiritual view of the law versus a ceremonial view of the law. It's the grace of God, His sovereign kindness, I think, versus man's merit, His effort. His trying in any form to merit his salvation. To put one's trust, or we could say faith, in one's own efforts and not in God's free gift of salvation through faith in Christ nullifies grace. It makes it void. And how do we do this? Or at least how do we, even as believers who say we profess that we believe in Christ by the grace that he has given to us, that faith is a gift. And justification is that gift of God. How do we nullify it? Or how do we put ourselves in a position to frustrate that grace? Well, I think... One of the things that happens, and we heard a little bit about it today in Sunday school, is that we would listen to teachers or preachers who do not stress the cross of Christ or the grace of God in the crucifixion of Christ. Peter seems to have done that. Earlier in chapter 2, when he was having... Food fellowship, table fellowship with the Gentiles. And then the scriptures tell us certain men from James. Certain men who kind of name dropped, used James as the name by which they came into the church to preach a different gospel, to tell them that they ought to be saved by keeping the law. Peter seems to have fallen into that trap of listening to those voices that had no direction or centrality on the preaching of the cross. And that happens today. We sometimes pray that other churches in our community 
every name where the name of Christ is named, that there would be a celebration of Christ. And, and yes, that's true. We ought to pray for that. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, he says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And without that hymn crucified, there are many who preach Christ and they have a vision of Christ in a little bitty box that this is what Christ is. And if they're not preaching the cross, they're not really preaching Christ. We can also frustrate this grace, I think, when we never move out of the theoretical we, we never move out of sort of the academic understanding of what crucifixion is and was. Paul, in chapter 3, is going to start laying it heavy on the Galatians because he says, you foolish Galatians, to whom Christ was publicly demonstrated as crucified, and you didn't get it. You, you didn't fully understand what that meant. You didn't embrace that. You never felt that that revelation as a controlling idea in your mind, in your life. It didn't have any force to how you actually live. And we can do that. We can treat the cross academically. And therefore, we never connect to the cross emotionally. We never connect to that doctrine of free grace in Christ through his death. We're, we're never moved like Isaac Watts was moved when he wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. His emotions, his being was affected by thinking and meditating upon the cross and what it meant that his Savior hung there. But we never really get to the question that Paul raises in this passage either. And we frustrate the grace of God when we never really ask that question, so who keeps the law? What's the alternative? If justification is not by faith in Christ alone, then... Who kept the law? Who declares us right before God? How is this going to work? John Eady wrote, If man by works of law can justify himself, what need was there that Christ should die to provide for him what he can win for himself? Do you see? If man can get it on his own, what need was there for Christ to go through the agony, the, even the prophecy of his own death in three days, right? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. What, what need was, for, was there for all of that? There would be no place for the cross. There would no, be no need for Christ to do that. There would be no stumbling block. There would be no scandal. And there again, I think many, even American Christians would say, yeah, we don't want the scandal of the cross. It is scandalous. It is a stumbling block. We can't get over it. We don't understand why you need it. 
And Paul says, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And we know from the scriptures that Christ did die, that he did hang on the cross. And I would like to take just a few moments anyway of going through, and I took my quotations from a passage in Matthew chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. But what I was thinking of this week when Paul speaks of this stumbling block, he speaks of Christ crucified again in 1 Corinthians. He says, to the Jews it was a stumbling block. They were looking for a sign. And to them, the cross, Christ crucified, was a stumbling block. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were looking for wisdom. And it was, I think we could say, that rock of offense, that it was a scandal to them, that it didn't fit their logic, it didn't fit their thinking and their wisdom. And so we see these two groups that Paul speaks of, the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you read Matthew 27, you, you almost get this vision of, of a, the sea of humanity. People, the chief priests, the passers-by, the thieves, the Roman soldiers, Jews and Gentiles all miss the cross. They miss the centrality of the cross and what was happening even on that day, on that weekend in Jerusalem, when these, this great thing happened. And so I want to just pull out a few things about the cross, the, defining the cross. And in Matthew 27, after Jesus has been arrested and they pass sentence on him and he's handed over to the Roman soldiers, it, we see the mockery of the cross. And this, remember that what the soldiers did, the first thing they do when he comes in, they, they strip him and put on this this uh, scarlet robe, they weave the crown of thorns, and, and there was one, and I think he's got his, his math a little bit wrong, but he claims the thorns were 120 centimeters long. I think that's a little, that's over a meter. Something's wrong there, okay? But they pressed them into his head so that he bled, and they gave him a, a staff of reeds, right? This flimsy thing, and they all mocked him by kneeling and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They thought that they were saying something that was totally ironic. Here is this man, and he's claiming he's the King of the Jews, that he has no authority. He's just going to be killed like a common criminal. But what does Christ say? If we read Matthew 20 through 28, we hear him say on one side, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you read that and you think, okay, I, is he a king? And then you read 28 after the resurrection and what does he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The irony of the cross, the irony of this mockery is they are saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were actually correct in what they said. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The cross mocks those who think that title, self-promotion, any claim to someone might have to authority is an authority. Christ showed that he was the authority. He is the king. 
There is also the power of the cross displayed in Matthew 27 in the death of Christ. And here it says the the passers-by. And people, that's why they did the, the, the crucifixion on Golgotha, because it was a place where people had to pass by. There had to be, they wanted people to see, the Romans did, they wanted to, people to see as a deterrent to their breaking the law, the things that they had done. It was an instrument of pain, but it was also an instrument of shame because they were naked. And it was a shame for someone to hang on a tree. We understand that. And it also was an instrument that showed and displayed the powerlessness of human frailty. That no man could bring himself down on that cross. He could not resist death. And what did the passersby shout? You, you who are going to destroy the temple, save yourself. If you are going to destroy the temple, you have some kind of power to do that. But you can't even save yourself. But Jesus knew that the point of the temple was that that was the place where a holy God met sinful man through a mediator. That when the offering was offered, that place of atonement where the blood was sprinkled, that was where they would meet. God would have made a way for man to come before him. And now Christ, by his going to the cross, displayed that, yes, my supposed powerless state, by the power of my sinless life, establishes myself as that temple, as that place where a holy God meets sinful man through a mediator, and I am that man. And Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he doesn't mean by that, and you've probably heard people say this, very silly things, taking up their cross. Oh, that's just the cross I have to bear. And it goes from everything from an ingrown toenail to some persecution they feel by their boss at work, and that's not what Christ means at all. It means that you have abandoned all hope of life in this world by yourself. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul has already said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the power of the cross. To bring us to that state that we could not do ourselves. There is the moral imperative of the cross. The chief priests take up the cry now. They, they looked at him and they said, he saved others but he can't even save himself. And they might be referring to the miracles that he did. They might even have understood something about the raising of Lazarus. They might have seen the miracles perform. They might have been those who observed the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him. They might have said, yeah, he saved some others, but he cannot save himself. But Jesus was given a name before he was born. What did 
they tell, the Spirit tell his parents, you shall call his name Jesus. And it's a form of Joshua, which translated means Yahweh saves. Jesus was announced before his birth that he would be the one to save his people from their sins. But there was an imperative. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Christ went to the cross with these words, Not my will, but thy will be done. And the irony of the cross stated very well, and I would commend this book to you. The book is simply titled Scandalous by D.A. Carson. He says, the great irony of the cross is that in order to save others, he could not save himself because of the moral imperative without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. He had to stay on that cross. Otherwise, he could not have saved others. Biblical Christianity is never about rules and regulations, but it is about transformed lives that have been saved by Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now we desire to live righteously before him. Our inner man didn't long for any of that. We, I point up here because we sang it today. My soul panteth, O Lord, for me. Before Christ, did your soul ever pant for God? No, it did not. The scriptures tells us even if you had a pretension, it was not by faith. But now we're transformed. We want to live for God. We want to live for his glory. We live by a moral imperative. The same imperative that was given to Abraham. I am the Lord your God. Walk before me and be blameless. And finally we see in Matthew 27 the despair of the cross. The thieves get involved this time. They're hanging on the cross and they said, He trusts in God. Let God save him. If he trusts in God truly, let God save him. And then almost immediately we hear Jesus' words that many have taken, and I, I, I cringe to even relate this, but it's apparently what many think. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there are many, and I can't believe it, but it's almost as if as Jesus was dying, he texted, OMG, as if it was just some exclamation, but that would be a blasphemy. He was not saying that, that way. Because we know that Jesus cried out after that and yielded up his spirit. And then it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Formerly, before that moment in time, only the priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, couldn't he? He could enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people, but now, because of Christ, because of the agony and despair and the desolation that he endured on the cross, the presence of God was open to all who had faith in him. 
through the shed blood of Christ, through the one mediator, through that one path in the veil, through Jesus Christ. I am not one given much to poetry. If you ask me what an iambic pentameter was, I would say it's either in a zoo or it's in a geometry book. But I came across this in D.A. Carson, a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And the poem is entitled Cooper's Grave. Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R, for William Cooper. And we have, I know, four things about William Cooper now. One is that we sing some beautiful hymns that he penned out of his relationship with Christ. Another is that he was a brilliant essayist and wrote essays for both students of Cambridge and Oxford. Another is that he was John Newton's very dear friend. But most of us didn't know that for his whole life long, as far as I can understand, William Cooper was clinically depressed. And two or three times during his life, he was committed to an insane asylum. And yet he was a sincere, dear brother in the Lord. But Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I believe, in thinking of William Cooper, wrote this poem about his, the release from the desolation because of Christ's desolation. She wrote, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry this universe had shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation, that of the lost no son should use these words of desolation. Do you see? Because Christ endured the desolation and despair of the cross and cried that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? None of his dear children should ever have to cry that cry. That's the power. That's the moral imperative. That is the despair. That is the mockery of the cross. Making a mockery of the chief priests, of the thieves, of the passers-by, of the Roman soldiers. Christ did die for a purpose. To show his authority over sin and death. To be powerless for those, power for those who are powerless. To save his people from their sins. To open a new and living way to God Almighty on behalf of his own children. Dr. Joseph Piper writes, If you teach a works righteousness, you are sinning against the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of Christ going to that cross. What are we saying we, if we say that if righteousness comes through the law, if it does come through the law, I, I think, again, some of the commentators, I think, stop a little bit short. Yes, it is this. It is bad enough to assume that works are necessary as a supplement 
for salvation. If you say that they, you must supplement your salvation in Christ with works, you are saying that Christ's death was ineffectual, that it was not effective, that it didn't do what God sent him to do. But I think it's worse that Paul says here to require works for salvation. Then what are you saying? That Christ's death was to absolutely no purpose that Jesus was, in fact, a false Messiah. Timothy George writes, If we add works of the law to the sacrifice of the cross, then indeed we make a mockery of Jesus' death. Just as the soldiers who spat upon him, the thieves who threw insults at him, and the rabble who shouted, Come down from the cross. And what are these things? by the Jews and the Gentiles, by the thieves, the chief priests, the robbers, the, the passers-by, the soldiers. Everyone is looking for signs or wisdom. They're, everyone is looking for some way to say, I can do it on my own. I can be right with God. I know what to do or I know what to look for. I know what to find. And the answer is, it is not in man's pride. He cannot do that. In fact, Piper goes on to say, the purpose of free and sovereign grace is to put a knife in the heart of pride. If salvation comes by works of the law, then Christ died needlessly, and you are trying to nullify the grace of God. Either Christ did it all, or Christ did nothing. But Paul writes, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners as Christ, a minister of sin, may it never be. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, man is a guilty sinner. God is a holy God. How can the two be brought together? The answer is the cross. Don't lose sight of the cross. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is with humility, thanksgiving, and sigh that we stand in awe and say thank you for the cross that Christ paid the price, that he went to the cross, that he paid the price, that he endured the shame for our sake, that he might bring us to you. Father, thank you. May we live according to that word of truth, to your glory and to your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction? From Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Let us love and sing.